Are you working on your author career, but struggling to get that first book published? Does the goal of being an author seem too lofty? Or thoughts of having multiple books and making a full-time living are as fantastical as living in Cinderella's castle? Welcome to Discovered Wordsmiths, a podcast where aspiring authors can be heard. Join Steven Schneider as he finds and talks to authors you may not know, but authors that have gotten their foot on the author career path. Hear what they've done to get there and where they want to go now. Settle back. It's time for a bit of inspiration and advice. Come listen to today's Discovered Wordsmith. All right, so let's talk some author stuff. You've written a couple books. So what are some things that you are doing different now that you've learned from when you first started? I think every time you start something new, it should be better. And if it's not, you should stop. I think every time, like, for instance, when I wrote my first novel, it was terrible. And I knew it was terrible. And I knew it wasn't going to do anything with it. I just needed to show that I could write something longer to myself, that I could write something longer than a 15-page short story. I published a lot of short stories back in the day. And I loved that media. But I was like, can I sustain an editor for 200 plus pages? So I set myself a task to do that. And I did it. And it was awful, but it was done. And it was big or than a short story. And then I threw it away. And I was okay with that. And then I started another book. And this one was much, much better. And that got me my first agent. And it also was shortlisted for a big prize. Now, it didn't sell. So shit happens. But then I worked on another book. And I, I just think you, you, if you don't learn about craft and about pace and about beauty and about what works, every time you start writing something, you shouldn't be writing. You should, I mean, that's fine. Nobody needs to be a writer. But to think that you're, somebody the other day on writing Twitter said, what should I do with my, should I edit my book that I just finished or should I give it to somebody else? I said, first of all, you need to put it away for a month. Just put it away. And then you need to pick it up in a month and you need to edit yourself and maybe rewrite the whole thing. And then you need to put it away again. And then you need to do that one or two more times. And then you need to pay somebody to edit it if you're going to try and publish it yourself. And if not, still maybe get beta readers or something. To think that people are just going to dash off a book and that's it. It doesn't need any editing. It doesn't need any rewriting. It doesn't need somebody saying, what's going on here? Do you, are you sure you want to do this? It's preposterous to me. Right. But so you need to see writing as a process. You need to see it not as like, I'm going to write a bestseller and be famous, but I'm going to write the best book I can. And then I'm going to make it better. And then I'm going to make it better. And then I'm going to make it better. And then it's going to be the best book it can. I thought this book was done and it was accepted. And then when I worked with that editor at the press, I thought, damn, wow. the changes were not huge at all. But every question he asked me needed to be answered. And it, it became then a very good book. Nice. Which I needed somebody else to help me with. And as a former editor, I got it. You have to be open to that. But you, if you're not, then... Yeah, it, it, 
working with an editor is definitely a learning process. And I've learned a lot about my writing and better writing doing so, but you have to be open to it. I know some authors that wrote that literally spent like four and a half years writing the first novel and finished it and was done, ready to publish. No, and I was even told by somebody, no, I'm not going to send it to an editor because I don't think they'd understand what I'm trying to do. If an editor is not going to understand it, how do you think an audience is going to understand exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. And I'll, yeah, I, exactly. And I just, there, there are some obvious examples of some very famous edit, writers who are no longer edited. And you can tell, but mostly you need one. And you need somebody to just read it like a reader and say, I don't know if I get what you're doing here, or I think I need a little more juice, or I think you've already said this, or now you've said it twice, and I think you only need to say it once. And never mind copy editing that happens later, which is also extremely important, not just for typos and mistakes, but for grammar, weirdnesses that you might have done, or for misplaced modifiers or all sorts of things that, that as a writer you really don't want in your book. You want it to be as perfect as possible. So yeah, you have to be absolutely amenable to a critical eye because not everybody, even if it's published, not everybody's going to like it. Publishers Weekly didn't have very nice things to say about this book, which devastated me. They said it was, let's see, half cooked, which I was just devastated by. But every other review has been fabulous. So I just, I can't let that get to me. But you you need to realize that every every novel is subjective, even the canon. People are still arguing, well, should Fitzgerald and Hemingway be in the canon? And blah, blah. So if you can't convince an editor of what you're doing, exactly, how do you reach anybody else? Right. Yeah. And there's a truth right there for anyone. No matter what you're writing, you got to write for the right audience. You didn't get a, as favorable publisher's journal review as you would have liked, but there's multiple people that do those reviews. So your book may just be the wrong book for that person. That's the unfortunate thing about those reviews. It is. And I think it probably was. And I, there's nothing to do about it because that reaction has been a one-off. Yeah. So it's okay. And they may have well, been having a bad day or they may have just read something that just put them in a bad mood and moved on to your book. and it, there's so many things, but I talk, I write middle grade fiction and you may say Harper Lee is an amazing writer and everybody should read her book and it's a great book, but you go talk to most fifth graders. They're like, oh my God, that book sucks so bad. <laughs> oh, which one is it? It's your point of view, I guess. Yeah, I think Harper, I think Taylor Meinberg is way overrated. It's been living on this lofty cloud for a very long time. It was a nice book, but whoa, when people say it's their favorite book they ever read, I'm just like, I don't think more things. It's a good book, but she's become this lioness for this one book, essentially. And, oh, did she's no longer with us, but God, what I think it, about. It's I becoming more dated, uh, unfortunately, with some of yeah. the way the world has moved on, as Stephen King would say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, dated is okay if it's still profound, but in this sense, I guess people like the way the whole way that he came to the Atticus Finch came to the defense of, of black people, but there's a lot of other stuff being written about and by minorities that is spectacular. Better, yeah. I, and, and that's one of the points. Can teach you so much more. Yeah, uh, one of my new favorite authors is Jeff Strand. He writes kind of 
comedy horror. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just really love his stuff. It's not for everybody, and a lot of people don't like it. But he has written a couple middle grade books, and he's gotten comments from teachers saying, oh, thank God. He's, I cannot get kids to read books. And my thought is, that's because you're giving them books that they don't care about and they don't want to read. Yeah. But they pick up these middle grade books by him, and they're funny. They get engaged, and they're like, give us more. And the teachers are like, we love your books because they get the kids to read. And that's one of my things is, I think sometimes we push things like To Kill a Mockingbird on kids before they want to read it or they can enjoy it for what it is. That we're just going to force this on you. And it's like, no wonder they don't want to read because it's a bad experience. And I'm not, again, not saying it's a bad book. No, I I understand completely. For certain people at certain times, necessarily. Yeah, no, when I was, my daughter was younger in, in middle school and early high school. She loved Ellen Hopkins. I don't know if you know who she is. She's very famous YA. Okay. And her books are almost always written in poetry. And they're fat, fat. And she was addicted to them. And I said, I don't get it, but this woman's very famous and very successful and you love them. That's great. She's now on the banned books list, Ellen, which is fascinating. And I'm like, okay, I get that because her books are tough, but they are important. And then my daughter goes in my bookshelf and she pulls down The Great Gatsby and she pulls down As I Lie Dying and she pulls down all these classics and she starts reading those. And I never had a worry that she would stop. But and Hopkins wasn't who I wanted to read, but I got, I understood why she was speaking to Grace and... And that made sense. My my son is addicted to the Harry Potter books, and he would he was a very fast reader, and he would read read them in, in hours. He would do a marathon. It was wow. crazy. So we were. I guess he was a teenager. Most of them had either come out or he'd finished them. And we were on a trip, and I was reading American Gods by Neil Gaiman, which love that book. Oh man, one of the best novels ever written. Uh, brilliant. I've read it three times, which I never do. And I finished the book and I turned around to my son and I handed it to him and I said, read this. And he's in because he trusts me and we have a good relationship. He said, okay. And he was blown away. But I just knew that it would have an impact on him too. But because both of my kids grew up reading, seeing their father and I read, reading was never onerous. It was joyful. And I didn't care what they read. I didn't tell them they couldn't read this. They couldn't see R-rated movies, but I didn't care what they read. That didn't bother me. Books, because I read completely inappropriate stuff very young. But yeah, that got him into, he was, now he's a huge Neil Gaiman fan and has been. But yeah, I think you need to meet people where they're at and then they'll get farther along. I, I think some of the books on the list for the kids are only there because that's what has always been there. Work for parents and grandparents. And I'm not, again, not saying they're bad books, just not maybe the right books or appropriate books for the kids in 2022, or that they're better books than others. I think sometimes those lists should be reevaluated. Oh, yeah. No, I do too. I'm always curious about the hundred books you should have read. I'm like, okay, really? Why? Tell me why I should have read this particular book. Because it's old. <laughs> we all have, there's an author named David Lodge, who I think is now deceased, but I was living in England. And I read all his books and he's, very clever and funny. He writes about academia in a very satirical way. I can't remember the name of the game, but he writes about a game where all these English professors go to parties and they try to beat out the other people 
with a famous book that they've never read and like Ulysses and Don Quixote. And it's so fabulous. It's just great. You know, here are these people who live in words and write and do all this stuff. And they have this parlor game they play at dinner parties, which is I haven't read something that everyone you know, says they've read. And that, and sometimes I've been making up that I read this for years. So that's fun, I think. And yeah. anyway, my book is Ulysses. I've never read Ulysses. And I, I've read the graphic novel. What? I've read the graphic novel <laughs> that, that somebody <laughs> did. So I, I cried like, three times and then gave up. Yeah. All right. Lisa, when you write, what software and services do you like and do you use? I'm, I'm very old fashioned. I use Word. Okay. Uh, I used it from the beginning. It is unwieldy and often infuriating, but I figured out things like so. When I first started, everything went in one file. Now I, each chapter, each revision is a different file and stuff. So I've learned ways to work with it. But I'm very simple. I work on a PC, usually a desktop. I have a laptop. Is what I'm talking to you on. I don't worry about anything except the words. When I start, I just start writing. And I don't even know if that's going to be the beginning or it's going to be the middle or the end. And when I cut things, I save them. And maybe I'll use them again, or maybe I'll use them for something else. Use them somewhere else, yeah. Yes, exactly. I also, I'm very old-fashioned in that when I finish what I think is a book, I print it out, or an essay. I always print it because that's where I got my start, was reading and editing manuscripts that I typed or somebody else typed. Nice. So I, I can see things better that way. So I wait. I use up some paper, but I really think I need to see what it looks like on the page because that's how it's going to present itself. So I do that. But other than that, I'm pretty old school. I just write, save, print, and keep on going. Nothing fancy. Okay. So besides doing podcasts and going to the Montana Book Festival, what else are you doing to market your book and get it out there? I've hired a publicist to help me, but I don't, I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. I have my website, which is a really good platform. If it would drive people to, if I could drive people to it, it's it says everything about me that's necessary. It links to a lot of my writing. It's ways to buy, buy the books that I've been in. I've been in a lot of anthologies, fiction and nonfiction. So my work's out there. I don't, probably not enough. But I had some illness for a while, and I lost, as I said, the publicist at the press left. And so I lost my momentum. What can you do? It's, there's always this buzz at the beginning. It's like a new relationship, right? At first kiss, the first time you have sex, it's like, whoa. And then things are, are less exotic, perhaps. But I never thought of it like that, but I think that's true. But anyway, so that's kind of the way it is. Your book, they send you boxes and your book arrives and you open them up. And the first time you do a reading and you First time you sign a book or sell a book, it's all very heady, but it's not something that sustains itself unless you are a best-selling author, and that then it just does it by itself. You don't have to do anything, really. We have to work a lot harder. Okay. We've been talking a lot, but that wasn't actually our topic of choice. We were going to talk about managing your time, especially at, with having a family and getting books and stuff written. So. You've got a couple kids, you said. They're grown, um, yeah. Pardon me? They're grown, yes. Yeah, grown. 
So what have you done? What did you do when you were having to raise kids and your mother and married husband and all the things that go with that and writing books? How do you schedule all that, manage your time? When I first started writing books and having babies, my parents were not sick. So that was okay. That wasn't until later when my daughter was a little bit older and my son too. But when my children were babies, I just uh, I decided that they're five year and a half years apart. So I, they were each like an only child in a sense. But I just had to be incredibly disciplined. When they, after the first couple of months where you nap when they nap and you get things done, I decided I was going to use that time to work. And so I did. And it was not easy. But if I had an hour or two, and when they started going to play school for whatever time I would work then, I would work after my husband got home and could look at after the kids. I went to my first writing colony or artist colony when my son was 18 months old, which was hard. I had never left him. But my mother-in-law came and stayed and helped my then husband take care of him. But I went for two weeks. And I, it was the first time I'd been seen as a writer by a bunch of other people who were writers and painters and musicians and composers. My only identity was there, was my work there. And that's when things started to really take off. And so I did so much work during that two weeks that I could then edit it and rework it. And I had a momentum going. Really, think that changed my life. It was the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, which is still a very fantastic colony. I've been many times. But that chunk of time, two weeks where I didn't have to take care of family, cook, clean, shop, anything, was profound. And so I tried to recreate as much of those moments as I could, which is hard. But Every time I went, there was a, I got a jump start on a project or several projects. And I used to say you could do six months worth of writing in a week or two at some place like that because you had nothing else in your head. Everything was, I didn't even allow myself to think about my kids until nighttime when I would call home. And this was back before the days of the internet and cell phones. And so you really had no way of being in touch with people. So you were, now you have to enforce it when you go to these places and not take your phone and turn right. off social media and the internet and stuff. I think it's hard, really hard for women to find the time to work on their writing or art or whatever it is they do, especially if they're raising kids and or also have a day job. So. Right. The only thing I can tell people is that you have to say, how much do you want it? How much do you want this? There, yes, agreed. And uh, I'm not arguing it, but it's not just women, because I was a single dad for a large part of my kids growing up. Yeah. And yeah. I had, luckily had support from my mother, so their grandparents, and having a job and the kids. So yeah, it's how bad do you want it? And you, I always hear people like, I just don't have the time. Like, really? Because I had a job and I had two kids and I was writing. So it's how bad do you want it is what it really comes down to. I remember when I had, or maybe I was pregnant with my daughter, who's my second child, and a woman was at my house for dinner. 
She was not invited back. <laughs> she looked at him and she goes, oh, when you have your second baby, your house won't be this clean. And I looked at her and I said, why? And she said, she looked at me and I said, I like a clean house. It's important to me. I'll clean my house. I'll read a newspaper. People always say, oh, how do you have time to read the news every morning? Like, I take the time. Take time for what's important to you. People would also say, oh, you read? When do you read? Sometimes I read 11 o'clock at night after my husband's asleep and the kids have been in bed for a while. I read for an hour because that's my quiet time. I will read then because reading is really important to me. So, yes, of course, there's people who have very few resources and it's very difficult. But there are so many writers out there writing through unspeakable trials. Yeah. Trying so hard, writing in war zones, writing in abuse situations, in poverty, that it's how bad do you really want this? And even what if you found half an hour a day and you wrote 500 words? It would add up. Right. It adds up. I think a large, and this is my observation, opinion, is we sometimes get distracted by the unimportant things. And that, but sometimes it's a mindset also. So, yeah, we get distracted by what's everyone doing on Facebook. What are these 10 cool videos that lead to 10 more and all that? But it's also the mindset that I've had a rough day and dealing with the work and the kids and the husband and the dog and whatever else becomes difficult. I'm relaxing and finding some enjoyment watching these videos. And that's where the alert comes in. Whereas, Oh, writing's going to be work and a job. So you avoid it. Whereas I enjoyed my writing, it helped me relax. And I was able to change my mindset that's like, I'm not enjoying these videos as much as I would enjoy writing right now. And I think that helped me a lot. And, find and, the time. Yeah. If you see it as a desire, not a chore, you need to see what you're doing as something you want to be doing. If you don't want to be doing, don't do it. If you don't want to be doing it. I mean, Nobody needs your book unless you need your book. If you, and all, if you want a glass of wine at night and not and to watch some good television and you don't want to write that night, then do that. Don't beat yourself up. But it's kind of like being on a diet. So say you have a chocolate bar. That's not the end of the world. It's the end of that diet that day. But that's the end of your being good right. nutritionally. But it doesn't mean you can't start and not have a chocolate bar the next day. Right. You, each day is a new day. and. Some days you go great guns and everything works and happy things happen. And it's also hard to write. I think for every writer I know right now or the past five years, because of politics, because of catastrophes and apocalypses and climate change and war and the overthrow of the government and everything you can think of, it's... if people felt the same thing after 9-11, they felt paralyzed because yeah. they're like, what can I contribute after this horror? But you have to separate yourself out and say, my contribution is not to this. It's different. It's smaller. It's specific. And some people are doing great, like Emily St. John Mandel. She is a great apocalyptic writer. She's amazing. And she's been, she wrote Station Eleven before the pandemic, and it was prescient. Also a great television show, by the way. But um, not everybody has to be writing apocalyptic fiction just because we're in an apocalypse. You don't have to. So you just have to decide 
what's more important and don't let yourself get derailed because it is easy to get derailed. It's get, you, know, you get derailed by having a, a baby, by getting married, by losing a spouse, by getting divorced, by losing income, a million, by being ill, a million different things. If we look at Laura Hildebrand, who wrote uh, Seabiscuit, right? I mean, she's chronic fatigue resistance. She's been in bed for a year, 30 years. Wow. And she's written astonishing books. They won all kinds of prizes. When I think about that, I think, why should I complain? And this woman's writing through fear, pain, exhaustion, and doing beautiful work. So there's just all kinds of ways to do it. So, do it. so do you think, as a woman, mother, and we were bringing up this topic, do you think women are discouraged from doing something like writing, doing something for themselves and bringing these things out because they're supposed to be a mother, they're supposed to take care of the kids? I don't know if that's so true anymore. I think oh. it was true, which is why Virginia Woolf wrote what she did, an independent income and a room of one's own. I do think it's important if you can carve out a space in your house, it may not be a room, but someplace where you can go and, and work, or maybe it's just a time when the house is empty and quiet. But I think it is hard. I think especially hard for single women who have no support, emotional support or physical support, to write and work and raise kids. I wanted children very badly. I made a conscious effort and desire to have them. I wanted to raise them myself. Not that I had the means for a nanny, but I really wanted to be able to raise them. So I accepted that we'd live off one paycheck for a while. And, and I think raising children informed my work for the better in a billion ways. And I still think my children are the best things I've ever done. I mean, they're amazing people. So I can't imagine myself as a, I think if I hadn't had children, I wouldn't be a very good writer. But that's me. Both having to get out of your autism and take care of somebody else before you, and also having, for me in this case, to budget your time in an increments because you had duties as a mother and a wife helped me be disciplined. But also, I think it just helped my work. It became more compassionate, more interesting. So I think it's hard, yes. But I think right now with what's happened with Roe, it's, oh, it's way complicated. So, yeah, it might discourage women who would have had more freedom and can't have it because they can't have control over their bodies. But we got to get that back. So as long as women can help author their fate, I think they're okay. But if it becomes completely taken from them, then I don't know. Yeah. I'm a guy, so I can't say, no, women have all the same. It's not my experience. I see that's what's available, but I don't know if everybody supports it and recognizes it. I think there's probably plenty of women that still think, oh, I could never do that because people will think I'm a bad mother or something. I think that thinking is starting yeah. to go away a bit. They might be, but there's but, a lot of but, women who voted for Donald Trump, too. So. <laughs> there's a whole other discussion. <laughs> so, but, but I you, think, you can see it, defeat your own self. <laughs> man or woman, though, I think you need some support, just like you need support taking care of kids. You need support if you're going to do writing. You need a neighbor, a mother, a husband, wife. You need that acknowledgement that, yes, you can do this and you should get some time to do this. You do, but if you don't get it, you need to take it. My very first journalism job, I was 
it was cubicles. I was at Boston Magazine, and I said to my boss, a woman, I said, so what time do I get lunch? And she said, you don't get lunch. You take it. And I thought, whoa. So that was like, that was a huge light bulb moment for me. Yeah. Okay, I get it. My husband at the time, he's no longer my husband, was marginally supportive, but mostly because I kept everything else up, the dinners, the entertaining, the house, the children's activities, blah, 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 blah. Okay, you want to write? Fine, as long as it doesn't interfere with all this other stuff. And my parents were not very supportive because they wanted me to make money. But children of the Depression and all that. But for me, going off to a colony was really important. But also I had, I had in, at the beginning, writers' groups, people that I would sit and talk to my work, but that would read my work and vice versa. But you really, nobody's going to hand it to you. They're not. Right. Nobody's going, oh, honey, you go do that. No, I don't care what your sexual orientation is, nothing. No, it's not going to happen. If you really want some time, you're going to just have to grab it. And it has to be grabbed out of wherever you can find it. If it means box mac and cheese for dinner that night, that's what it means. It's you, but you have to take it and you also have to be okay with taking it. And, can't be and those are the stories we always hear about. We don't hear about, I was a mother, but my husband took the kids at night and my mother watched them during the day and I had hours and all the, and we had nannies coming in. You don't hear those stories as being inspirational. It's the, I was a single struggling mother with three kids and I would get up early. I'd stay up late. I would write while I'm stirring the mac and cheese and stuff. Those are the stories we hear about. So take some comfort in that, that it, like you said, take the time. It's yours and push through it if that's what you really want. Because those are the inspirational stories that people want to hear. Yeah. Easy is not interesting, is it? That's <laughs> true. There you go. All right. Lisa, this has been a really great discussion okay. on several topics, it seems. But before we go, do you have any last minute advice that you would give to new authors that are listening? Don't give up. I wrote my first novel 30 years ago. Don't give up. This one took me a dozen years off and on, certainly not full time. But I put it away, went back. As my mother grew more and more ill, I added things in and pulled other things out. And then the novel ends with a death. So I always tell people when I read, here's a spoiler alert. One of the main characters is already dead. But yeah, just I could have. And during the lockdown, I I really wasn't doing a lot of, we didn't really have a lockdown, but during the time when I was at home a lot for months and months, because I have issues that I worried would be terrible if I got sick, I still do, but I was having a hard time doing new stuff because it was, a, it was such a scary thing. I didn't, and it's always how I imagine the world ending, not with a bang, but a whimper. It's like a couple of dead here, a couple of dead, not like Captain Trips and Stephen King, but right. Slowly. So it was profoundly anxiety inducing. And I said, I'm not going to do any new work right now. So I'm going to revisit this book and see what I want to do with it. I think two years before that, I, it had been a long list of very prestigious contests. And I thought, okay, so I know this is going to go. So I went back through it again, yet again. And then I started sending it out to the, getting ready, getting to send it out to the small presses. And a year from when it was accepted, it appeared, not with, you know, of course, humongous hard work. But so that was my kind of quarantine baby. 
I just said, I'm going to use what I do have, and I'm going to see if I can get that out there. And as I said, it's the book I needed to write. I wanted to write. It's perfect to me. It's exactly what I wanted to do. But I could have just said, ah, it's not going to happen. Now you can get, I got agents saying, yes, send me more. No, yes, blah, blah, blah. This went on for a couple of years back and forth. One agent said, cut 10,000 words. And I said, you've got to be out of your mind. This was about five years ago. And I put it away. And then I picked it up again. And I said, ooh, he's right. You do need to cut 10,000 words. So that made it a better book. So now I can do something new or not. But yeah, it's just don't give up. If you believe in your stuff, don't give up. If you, if it's causing you angst and depression, then do give it up. But if you still care about your work and you still care about other people reading it and you still care about what you have to say or what you think you have to say, then keep going. Who says you have to be a, a novelist in your 20s or a published novelist in your 30s or 40s? There's a lot of people publishing right. their first novels after 50 now, and it's becoming Poets and Writers does a whole issue on it every year. It's not even odd anymore. So keep going. It's your life. Figure it out how you want. Great. All right, Lisa, thank you very much for being on sure. and talking to us today. I sure, wish you luck you. on your book. I appreciate the, the time to talk about this. Thank you. And thank your good you. question. Thank you. Hi, if you enjoyed this episode of Discovered Wordsmiths, please support the author. Go to their website, go to Amazon, look them up, get the book. And if you click on the link that I have in the show notes, you'll also help support the podcast so I can keep the hosting and all the software I use and uh, keep it running for, to help more authors. When I am recording this, we've got over 100 episodes, lots of authors. Go to the website, discoveredwordsmiths.com. Check it out. There's a lot of great authors, probably in some genre that you love see what they have check out their books that's what the point of the podcast is for so people can discover new authors find some new books they love support the authors so they can continue writing so please support them and if you do like the podcast if you've been thinking of podcasting or you're a writer i've got some links also at the website click on those if you're interested in any of the software or services that i talk about everything that i have there is something I use. So I've got an affiliate link. Again, it's a little bit, if everyone clicked on those, if they were going to get it anyway, it helps keep the podcast going. So let's all help each other out, discover more authors to read. Thank you for listening to Discovered Wordsmiths. Come back next week and listen to another author discuss the road they've traveled and maybe sometime in the near future, it might be you.